This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prati will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is August 29th. Ten-year Treasury is at 4.12%. Yields dropped after new data has showed that consumer confidence is waning. Additionally, tech is having its first IPOs in almost 20 months, which is kind of new and exciting. Tim, you just came out with an article, Two Sides of the Same Coin. How about we talk about this and, and what's going on in your article? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, let me just mention that, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my career in equities and in equity, actually in equity capital markets going way back. And it's been a torturous long period uh, for all these guys in capital markets and in research, because don't forget, it's capital markets that pays the bills in research, because um, uh, they've been waiting forever to get deals done. Uh, and look, in good markets, especially if you're a if you're an active sort of tech oriented fund, IPOs can can deliver a whole lot of alpha. Uh, so there's a lot of excitement about there being some comeback to the calendar, as they say. Um, look, today I wrote a, a short piece called Two Sides of the Same Coin, and the coin is both inflation on one side and, and, and economic growth on the other. And we got some good economic data today for markets. It was weak economic data for the economy, which are the job openings are coming down, uh, and so are so is the quits rate. Uh, so you had a big rally. Uh, across the curve and an especially big rally in the 10-year. The 10-year has been so important to this market. It has just felt like it's been knocking on the door at around that 430, 435 level. And there's a lot of justified concern about what could happen with the 10-year. But what today reminded us of is, look, if the economic data gets real weak, don't forget, we just went through months of the economic surprise index, Citi's economic surprise index. There's others that measure it. It's not a very hard thing to measure, right? Bloomberg puts out consensus on there. Did the data beat or not beat? And and, and those that tends to trend. Uh, you know, we've had several months of economic surprises coming in. And then over the last couple of weeks, despite the Atlanta Fed GDP uh, nowcast, You've had economic data surprising to the weak side. Just because it's happening in inflation, in, in, in the numbers that people focus on inflation, doesn't mean it isn't just as big a commentary on the economy. The reason why jobs are weakening is because the economy is weakening. So my point is that I, I wrote this quick note just to make clear that our call is not that inflation is going to be persistent in a way that it just doesn't go away that what's different about the economy now than in the previous decades and the great moderation is that there's inflation volatility. Like you didn't even get blips of inflation really or fear of inflation over the last few decades. Now there is real fear uh, that you're going to have meaningful inflationary pressures in this economy whenever the economy is accelerating. That isn't right now. The economy is decelerating. We are uh, slowing down, the long and variable lags are finally starting to show up, and that is going to have an impact on inflation. It's going to have an impact on the labor market. The labor market may be secularly tight, but that doesn't mean there aren't going to be cyclical periods where demand falls and therefore labor demand falls as well. 
Now, we've got a whole lot of treasury supply coming. We've got a lot of duration coming. So as I kind of concluded in my piece today, we are going to have an opportunity to really find out uh, how much of a problem all of this long duration supply is going to be and just how embedded are expectations of secular inflation. Uh, we've been talking about secular inflation for a long time, but I feel like more and more every day I hear other commentators embracing this idea and at big spots like BlackRock and Bridgewater and, and KKR and places like that, the former uh, uh, Dallas Fed president was on TV the other day saying, that's the concern. It's about secular long-term inflation. And just to run through what we what we look at is it's it's labor as a result of demographics and deglobalization. It's the energy transition and the underinvestment in uh, tr traditional energy. And it is all of this supply of debt that comes as a result of mounting debt and higher structural deficits. So this past Friday, there was the meeting at Jackson Hole. It happens annually. It was a lot less draconian message than Powell had last year, which was hikes for longer, hikes forever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this year, he was more, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. It's really difficult to see how these borrowing costs are going to restrain the economy. Uh, anything to make out of what happened in Jackson this past week? Yeah, I mean, I love the little bit of poetry. The uh, we are navigating under, uh, we are not, we are navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. <laughs> uh, and look, I kind of respect Powell's humility. I mean, I, I respect the fact that Powell knows that he doesn't know the future. Uh, you know, when when he was so hawkish last year at Jackson Hole, he was just getting started. Now they're at the end or very close to the end. Uh, if we continue to get economic surprise indexes to the, uh, the if the economic surprise index continues to go lower, uh, you're you're probably done. There's there's not going to be pressure on them to do another 25 basis points. They're aware of the lags. They're going to let the lags uh, play out. So you know I'm not a Powell hater. Powell started way way too late. There's absolutely no reason why he's still buying mortgage-backed securities in 2022. But since then, I think Powell's done a good job. It's They've they've hiked hard like they had to. Um, I don't think they expected the lags to be as long as they are. But now, in retrospect, it's kind of obvious why they are as long as they are. Everybody termed out debt, whether it was through your mortgage or you're a treasurer, uh, you know, borrowing money at 2%. Why not term it out and fix it for as long as you can? Um but we're getting there. We are getting there. We are starting to see the cyclical slowdown. And you certainly, look, we're not immune to what the rest of the world does. We are very much part of a global economy. What is it? 50% of S&P earnings are now uh, offshore. So it is a global economy. And if demand is going to be weak in Europe and demand is going to be weak in China, we are not immune to that. Let's talk about retail. Um, obviously, inflation's kind of cut that we're right in the back to school special season, but you know, Foot Locker, Dick Sporting Goods, they've cut their profit forecast quite a bit. There does seem to be, that's the general trends. There has been a weird amount of what seems to be larceny in retail space. That's obviously inflationary, <laughs> yeah. but uh, that that's obviously coincides with people heavily in debt too, right? I mean, they wouldn't be stealing yeah. if, if they didn't see it advantageous. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple funny things that are going on with retail right now that have got to have analysts head spinning. One is one of the reasons why the Atlanta Fed um, now cast it. Remember, it's not a forecast. It's just it, it's the data that has come in and they extrapolated forward. And so I because you got a big retail sales number. 
Well, one of the things that came in that retail sales number, and this was July retail sales, was that sporting goods were very strong. So that's the government data that then you get, you hear from Walmart, sporting goods are terrible. The next day or two, you hear from Dick's, Dick's is down 20% because they say demand is terrible. Uh, and then the other side of it is then, you know, I've been pointing out that Red Book, uh, Red Book sales, which measure same store sales across retail for about 80% of retail in the country. It's a weekly, you know, high frequency, high quality data, and it is it is hooked higher. And, and that happened today, too. So that has been a huge head scratcher. The best understanding I can get of that is, is that just the timing of discounts. You had very little discounting last year. You may have some aggressive discounting going on this year. And that, you know, Redbook doesn't tell you what margins are. They just tell you what sales are. Uh, so if you it, so that would stand to reason. But that was definitely a stat that had some people confused today. Uh, the the retail and Redbook getting stronger. But overall, yeah, it has not been good retail earnings. Those that have beaten uh, have not uh, flowed through the beat. So in other words, like if your guide is for twenty for is for two dollars. And in the third quarter, uh, I'm sorry, in the second quarter, you report, because most of these are, most of retail, by the way, is a month late in reporting their, their off calendar. Uh, if they report 50 cents and the street was only looking for 40 cents for the quarter, but they don't raise the rest of the year, then you're essentially lowering your guide for the rest of the year by 10 cents. There's been a lot of that. Um, so you are seeing overall demand weakness uh, and a slowdown across much of retail. I, I think one thing that's really been interesting is the auto industry, because autos have been stronger, but the autos were like the last vestiges of the uh, of, of the um, global supply chain shortage. You, they still didn't have inventory and so forth, but now you're starting to see that used cars uh, are rolling over, a sign that demand is rolling over. You're starting to see pricing on new cars start to roll. And there's some evidence that you've had overproduction uh, by the big three and by anybody who's who's building cars domestically in anticipation of the UAW strike. And the UAW looks determined uh, to go on strike. So sorry for all that, but there's a lot of crosswinds that are going on in retail and in also retail durables demand. One one thing that seems to be interesting too is oil production. It seems like we're definitely drilling right now. Um, I mean, EIA expects U.S. crude to hit 12.8 billion barrels per day, and then next year 13.1. Right now, there's been oil prices have gone up, but analysts think we'll end the year at 3.56 a gallon, maybe 3.45 next year. But yeah, I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia aren't producing and their government's got a lot more say on production than ours, obviously. So it does seem interesting. Um, you'd think that Russia in particular, one, they have to finance their war due to oil, but it would also behoove them to uh, kick out kind of a neoliberal, neoconservative consensus, whatever you want to say on foreign policy, which Biden's part of, and then, you know, lead to what might yeah. be, you know, a Donald Trump presidency or a Vivek Ramaswamy or DeSantis, whatever, which would be a lot less hawkish on Russia. So, so yeah. Um, I, I think Russia's running into the petrostate issues that have, have happened in Venezuela or Nigeria or Mexico, where they were running full out. And, you know, it takes investment to keep capacity high. 
to keep replenishing the resources that you're using. So I think there's some question as to whether or not um, the Russians can produce um, a whole lot more than they're producing right now. Clearly, the Saudis are showing a ton of discipline. And look, I don't know, maybe maybe the Russians are uh, towing the line with the Saudis and realizing that may be their only friend left when all is said and done. Uh, but 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 output from the Saudis has been really, really meaningful. They're not playing. Um, you know, Jeff Curry from Goldman always says the key thing to remember is that the Saudis have more pricing power than they ever have before. I think he's right. And I think that's getting proven out. What's really interesting in the U.S., you mentioned the fact that production is at records, but the rig count is coming down. So there's an efficiency story. Uh, to uh, U.S. oil production that I think gets underappreciated. But production will come off here as the rig count continues to come lower. Um, you know, look, there's discipline at $80 now. There's, I mean, think about that. Real discipline at 80 bucks. Uh, the other issue we got is this Idalia, I think is the name. I never heard anybody actually named Idalia, but I, I guess that's the the hurricane that's coming ashore. Uh, you've got some refinery issues. I think you had a refinery issue in Port Arthur, which is a huge refinery. Um, earlier uh, this week, you know, the whole Gulf Coast, if you fly from New Orleans to Houston, it's nothing but petrochemicals and refineries and the same thing all the way. And, you know, we get, we, you should, we, we, there's some risk here that you get some refinery outages and then you'll see uh, gasoline take another step up. But you know my my view on energy is is unchanged. Uh, that the Saudis have a lot of pricing power. They need oil above eighty bucks. They probably need oil above ninety bucks. Uh, and that U.S. players are not going to add capacity, probably below that same level. So everybody is kind of singing from the same hymnal here. Uh, it's not uh, you know the United States producers are not part of the um of the of the OPEC group but they're going to behave the same way they're going to have the same kind of discipline at these higher prices that historically you know historically you wouldn't have a lot of discipline at 80 and 85 dollar oil well now you do and it seems to me that general consensus is that when it comes to consumer the psychology is the dollar amount right so it's not so much the three and change it's three becomes four something becomes yeah. at one point was five dollars something so once it crosses that dollar threshold there's a huge uh, you know consumer behavioral and, and also political psychology that goes into work you know you're right in inflation expectations I, I i tend to kind of ignore inflation expectations we started with this podcast talking about inflation expectations what's interesting to me is that inflation expectations have hit highs I think it was the Michigan number that hit uh, recent highs of long-term. And yet, gasoline has, gasoline has moved up off the bottom, but it hasn't put up like a big headline yet. Like, I feel like you're right. Like, you got to hit like a $4 handle yeah. in order for, you know, not just in California and Hawaii, for people to go, oh, wow, all right, all right. You know, because uh, so it's been surprising to me that inflation expectations have moved up as high as they have without inflation crossing that $4 level. I wouldn't be surprised if we do. We get a couple, we get we get higher global prices and we get a couple of refinery outages. Remember, we have, just like we don't have a lot of upstream capacity, we have negligible downstream capacity in the United States. And every year, downstream capacity is gonna get less. 
that ratchet only goes one way. And if you and if we get into a recession and a really weak uh, refining environment or, or, or crack spread uh, margin environment for the refiners, you're going to see that marginal capacity come down again. So I actually think there's more risk long term on gas prices and diesel prices, product prices than there are uh, on crude prices. Let's move our conversation to corporate uh, consolidation, or actually, I should say dynamism is really the proper word yeah. uh, right now. Or lack thereof. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, since 1990, there's only been 52 companies of the S&P 500 that were born after 1990. Um, so kind of the beginning of the Internet era, so to speak. Uh, that is you know, fascinating because that seems like pretty long in the tooth. That was the year I was born, and I feel like I've been around quite some time. And, right. you know, that's, you know, one in 10 companies roughly uh, have been around yeah. the last 33 years. So, I mean, what what's that mean? It's been really tough to topple uh, the big guys. And then a lot of these high profile companies, like let's say we work and stuff, have completely collapsed in recent right. years, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is interesting. You think of all the IPOs in the 90s and 2000s. Um, that have become big, the big leading companies, but they didn't, you know, that was a long, it was still a long time ago. You know, I, I think that, you know, one aspect of Bidenomics uh, that they talk about is really um, tightening antitrust law and really trying to enforce antitrust uh, because there really has been no enforcement of it's It's one of the things I agree with Jim Cramer on, and I don't agree with my neighbor, Jim Cramer on much of anything. Uh, but he, for a long time, and I don't even listen to him anymore, but for a long time, he lamented the fact that there's no antitrust rules. Anybody can buy anybody. The number one player in an industry can buy the number two player. And that's been going on for a long time. And, you know, the government just failed to prevent uh, the Microsoft Activision uh, deal. But I think that's a big part of it. I, I think falling competition um, because of a lack of antitrust is something that is a negative for corporate dynamism. Well, and then you can, it's a big part of the reason why, uh, you know, last 15 years, in terms of jobs, investment banking, and in particular, M&A has been the sexiest part of the business, right? Way more yeah. than asset management and everything, just because we have seen so much consolidation. And uh, that's the reason why there's so many people attracted to that line of work. Right. And you got so much private equity capital out there that is in that business of, I don't want to use the term rolling up industries, but continuing to consolidate industries. Look, if you got six players competing for one consumer dollar, uh, there's going to be price competition. You got to get share in order to use your capacity, et cetera. But when you only have two players, it's a hell of a lot easier there for there to be a little bit of a wink and a nod. I'm not saying collusion, but a wink and a nod to say, look, let's, let's not get crazy here. Everybody can make money. And I think that has happened in industry after industry. And there's an there's an author named, is it Thomas Papillon, uh, who, who has written a, a really good book about the issue. And, and he kind of illustrates how it has manifested itself. Uh, in likely higher inflation uh, and in in a lack of competition in a whole lot of industries where you can just keep taking pricing without risk of losing a lot of share. You think we, uh, what do we overlook this week, Tim? Um, I think one thing for me is BRICS, you know, had their meeting. Um, 
the whole bunch of companies, countries are joining the block. Uh, what's interesting to me is like the BRICS came out of a Goldman Sachs working paper, and now it's became like its own political entity. Uh, you know, it was just someone coined the term early 2000s. Now it doesn't make all that much sense. And yet here we are. The BRICS have got their own thing and they're they're expanding. Yeah, uh, this is a guy who I like named Peter Zion, um, and he's like an international. He's a he's a he's a, he's very thoughtful. He's very good. He does these great YouTube videos. Um, but he's he's been on the money. He's on the money around Russia and the Ukraine, and um, he's he's a well followed guy. But he he had a uh, he had a comment comparing BRICS to like a bunch of three year olds, kind of pretending to be adults pretending to be doing something, doing business and so forth, but they're really just babbling nonsense. Like, that's how he basically characterized the importance of the BRICS. Like, they, out of all of these negotiations and discussions and headlines, they've created a development bank that has been largely funded by China. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, but it, so is there, but you think longer term about it. Like, these guys embrace the Iranians, right? I mean, they kind of brought Iran into the fold. Like, is there going to be a big meaningful block of countries that um, where it's just all real politic. It, it, there, there is, you know, there's no UN, there's no WTO, there's just, we, we set the rules. I don't know. I, I, so ultimately I agree with, with Zion that there really hasn't been uh, anything to worry about with the, uh, this whole BRICS realization or whatever you want to call it. I, I think what's important is that the Chinese economy really seems to be weakening and weakening rapidly. Um, and that Xi just doesn't really believe in trying to incentivize consumer spending. Like they have a they have the classic balance sheet recession. They have a lot of savings and an unwillingness to spend. Now that's a generalization, right? Macau numbers are super, super strong again. Uh, high-end Chinese consumers continue to buy luxury, um, but there is going to be a wealth effect. I, I just I couldn't have any more con conviction that the real estate implosion in China is real and it's meaningfully worse uh, than 08 in the United States uh, by any and all measures of affordability uh, and leverage um, uh, and 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 how much people's savings are in real estate, you know, they don't have 401k plans, they don't have a bond portfolio, they own apartments, and they may own apartments in cities uh, that are priced at or have historically been priced at 10x income levels, 20x income levels. Um, and those prices are going to have to get reset. And with that is going to be the, the reset is going to be the level of savings in China. So if, if I'm if there's one area where I feel like I'm really, really bearish, it continues to be on China. Well, yeah, I mean, they were supposed to be, what, 30% of GDP growth uh, this year, and that's obviously not panned out. Uh, right, yeah. yeah, no, no, they're, they're, they are going, you know, in, in the growth engine of the world, uh, they have been for decades supplying this outsized uh, growth to, to uh, global GDP. That Those days are gone. No. And you Foreign might see- investment has collapsed, why wouldn't it? Right. And and I think you might see and you're already seeing places like Vietnam and India pick up yes. a ton of that slack. Yeah. Well, and, and even Japan. I don't know that Japan is necessarily picking up slack, uh, but definitely you're right. Vietnam and India uh, are winning in a big way. But every every month you see the trading partners to China, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, the export numbers to China are terrible, 
terrible. Down double digit again and again and again. Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, thanks for your time. And for all our listeners and subscribers, thank you. And, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.